You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Kaizen! This week, we're discussing how to establish and use the process of Kaizen, or continual improvement. Kaizen revolutionized industrial production, first in Japan, but later in America, and it can help you in improving your own development process. This is especially useful if you are in management, but you can still get a lot out of these concepts, even if you aren't in management. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Oh, man. Uh, The last, I don't know, like the last week or two of work has been really, really rough. Like last week, you know, we only had four days, right? So you would think, hey, this is going to be an easier week. Product I'm working on, you know, it's, it's still under testing. Um, we've, you know, we found a few things and we're trying to get all the, uh, the installer crap fixed. Plus when we, um, when we got that put together, it's part of another product. So that we had a baseless merge that happened with all the fun that that entails. Um, so yeah, that's going on. Um, everybody was preparing for a conference last week. They're there now they're at print 17 in, uh, Chicago. Thankfully it was not in Orlando this year. Cause that would not have gone quite so well. That happened. We have new clients coming on, you know, uh, with the new product coming out kind of getting some expanded responsibilities a little bit um, with those other stuff I'm you know supposed to be ramping up on while all this is going on. And we also had a failed hard drive last week on one of their developers' machines, and there was a lot of hullabaloo about that. Um, turns out it was recoverable. It was, it was the firmware. You know, Seagate puts the firmware on the platter, yeah. which means, you know, which probably saves them like a little bit of money maybe when they're manufacturing it, but it also means that, hey, you've got your firmware running on a Seagate drive. <laughs> and we all know how that goes with just oh, yeah. having your data on a Seagate drive. So, yeah, the inevitable happened, um, and it's it's being recoverable. It's a little bit more expensive than people would like. Yeah, well, and is you know there's been some downtime. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to get stuff tested and get help on database stuff though because he can't do anything else at the moment. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that's it's it's been entertaining. You know, I mean, it was it was just a mess, but it all hit at once. Like, I, you know, I got through last week and then I was sitting there and I was in my mastermind meeting Sunday morning and I was talking to the guys. I'm like, man, last week was a long week. It was just awful. And they're, they're like, it was a four day week. And I was like, yeah, it really was awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I got nothing. Yep. <laughs> I'm glad wow. I'm not in that week anymore. Today was kind of slow. Like it was easy. It was almost too easy today. It was like, it was frustrating. Frustratingly easy. Yeah. I, I, I by comparison, that. But it's like, yeah, I'm not complaining about that right now. No. Yeah. Uh, so how about you? Well, uh, we hit 100,000 downloads today. Boop, boop. Yeah. You texted me this morning. We were 99,999. We both got screenshots of that. So that's pretty awesome. And uh, then before I got to work, we'd, we'd already crossed over to 100,000. I've been working with the junior developer toolbox team a lot recently, getting them ready for their first episode, which should air before this one comes out. At this point in time, it hasn't aired. Dave and I have also been working on getting the Slack invites automated and all of our websites, which should also be done by the time this airs. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, we, you know, we started two years ago. 
And there's yeah. a lot involved with launching a podcast. I was actually talking about the s- getting Slack on the websites. Yeah. Also found out one of our new members of Developer Launchpad works in the same department as Dave and I do. So we're going to get lunch with them and a few other members that work downtown. Going to be kind of a, a fun little uh, midweek thing. So I learned an interesting lesson. Well, it was a lesson I already knew, but uh, learned firsthand by mistake last night. And that is don't mix barbiturates with opiates. Okay. (laughs) So I hurt my foot this weekend and I forgot that my IBS medication has phenobarb in it. Oh, so so that could be interesting. The medicine I had before this didn't, and so I just I'd forgotten that it had that in there. So when I took the painkillers for my foot, I got really, really loopy last night. I was still feeling it well into this morning's meetings. Awesome. That must have made it easier. Well, easier on me. I don't know about the rest of them. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I I told him what happened. I'm like, I'm just out of it. Um, I was also editing... The episode that's coming out this week when this kicked in. So if there were some weird audio edits a few weeks ago, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with with that bit of medical advice, I've got something biology related for IOTs. This week for IOTs, I have an incubator to grow bacteria. Now, the incubator is basically a styrofoam cooler that includes a fan, temperature sensors, and heating pads. And these are controlled via an Arduino-style microcontroller connected to some temperature sensors. The heating pads and fan are used to maintain constant temperature within the container. And the microcontroller turns these on and off as needed based on the data from the sensors. And speaking of data, all the data collected gets stored up into the cloud, which you can access from the web or a mobile application. The guy that wrote the blog post for this also has some other interesting IoT things from doing, I guess, backyard environmental experiments and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of cool. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we've got an email from John. It says, hey, Will and BJ, just thought I would write you guys a quick note to say thank you and to ask for advice. But first, let me share a little bit of my story. I'm a 31-year-old dad in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I work in a completely unrelated field. Going into the summer, I encouraged my 8-year-old daughter to do some coding exercises and thought just for fun that I would learn a little with her. A little Googling led me to Free Code Camp, which is where I started about two months ago. After only a few weeks, I fell in love with programming. I've always loved building things, and this combines with the challenge of problem solving and the opportunity to learn something new every single day. I'm now pursuing this as a future career. That's why I'm up right now at 4 a.m. while the kids sleep, getting ready to dive back in. The Complete Developer Podcast has been an amazing resource and inspiration to me during this time. I've been binging through the show over the last month and really appreciate the sense, the mix of humor, tech advice, career advice, and life advice. Keep up the good work. You're making a difference in my life, and I'm sure in the lives of many others. So now to the question. I'm almost done with a front-end certificate from Free Code Camp. I'm just working on finishing up my Simon game and cleaning up some of the other projects. I've also been plugging through a back-end track at Udacity that is mostly, mostly Python. 
listening to this podcast and searching the local job market, though, has led me to strongly consider pursuing C-sharp.net. Would you recommend going through the C-sharp track on Pluralsight? And are there any other tips you could give on someone getting into this language and framework? I'd love to hear your thoughts on developing a learning path that could leave me ready to apply for a junior position sometime next year. Thanks again for helping me through the late nights and early mornings as I fit this in around my day job and time with the family. You're a huge encouragement. Thanks, John. We have several friends that have been through the Free Code Camp program. Uh, The organizer here in Nashville even works with me and has been a guest on the show. And honestly, in my opinion, you're doing the right thing by looking at the market in your area. When I started, I wanted to stay in the Nashville area, and most of the jobs here are in the C-sharp.net realm. So I went that direction. Plus, I had a mentor that already knew C-sharp.net, so it made it easier. Yeah, and I mean, I personally tried to get away from C-sharp and Microsoft Stack uh, multiple times. I, I, you know, I, I did so... Um, with uh, Ruby on Rails, um, and now there's there's Ruby jobs. When I did it, there there weren't. I also looked into Python, Node, same deal. Apparently, I get things before they get to be big here. Um, unfortunately, you're a trendsetter. Yeah, apparently I'm a trendsetter, and now I'm using Delphi. So any moment now, Embarcadero is going to be bought by like everybody in Nashville. <laughs> Not really. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no. So yeah, you, you got to look at your market as far as where to learn it. Definitely you pick the right place by going to Pluralsight. Though um, I will say Pluralsight is great once you have the basics down. Yeah. It, it may not be the best place to start for learning the basic C-sharp language. Yeah. I would suggest what I did was went through Udacity. I found some courses that were on sale just some beginner courses, went through those and then found some blog posts. Um, I think Pride Parrot is the the blog that had the tutorial to create a blog that I went through and that really taught me MVC. And so I would suggest looking into that as well. The biggest thing that I can suggest though is to find a mentor to help guide you as you learn. That's what helped me the most. You know, having Will tell me Dude, you, you've got to stop working on this insane calculator app. Yeah, because, I mean, well, it was, it, the thing was on that, too, is you were getting to the point where you were getting diminishing returns. Yeah, well, it, it, it was a starting point, and yeah. I kind of got I got a little med student on it, you know. <laughs> I, I did. I went full oh, med student. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not that, uh, saying you went a little med student is like saying you were a little pregnant. That's not a, <laughs> that's not a thing. But, hey, John, in the meantime, send us an email with your contact info because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our shows to Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and the four members of Google+. We're also on Path and Tumblr. Guys, the time has finally come for DevSpace, North Alabama's premier polyglot technology conference. Will and I will be heading down tomorrow to set up our booth, and there's still time to get tickets for Friday and Saturday. Use the code COMPLETEDEV for a 10% discount and come down to Huntsville, Alabama to meet us and hear Will talk about ORMs and DBAs. And if you come down, stop by the booth and pick up some swag. We'll both be there along with uh, one of our junior developer toolbox friends. Uh, According to Wikipedia, Kaizen is the Japanese word for continual improvement. Now, actually, um, I did note that that's 
not quite how that's interpreted. It's actually just improvement. You know, it's, yeah. it's been taken to mean that at this point. Um, Beej and I happen to have a friend who is an industrial psychologist who introduced us to the concept, gosh, 15 years ago. Closer yeah. To, yeah. Uh, closer to 17 years ago. Yeah. Wow. 15 and, years and, ago and when me, we started this podcast. 20 years ago for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, or more. Um, and it was, you know, it was within the concept of, um, he, he taught us um, just kind of the the basics and the mindset more than the actual industrial bits. So like all the all the background history like is not something that we've really delved into. You know, so we thought we would do an episode on this, and we've kind of been planning it for a while. Yeah. And speaking of the history, uh, this is mostly taken from Wikipedia. It started in the training within industry program during the 1940s. The initial premise related to American manufacturing during the war years and was focused on small sort of incremental changes over time rather than large changes that might have constituted a bigger risk. Yeah. I mean, you got to bear in mind what the American psyche was, you know, the state of it at that point was. And it was not, you know, they, they weren't looking at longer range changes. They were like, how are we going to survive with the fleet at the bottom of the ocean right now? And so incremental changes were the, uh, the order of the day. That and you may have a resource today that you won't have next week. Right. Yeah, very easily. Or, um, yeah, especially just material resources. I mean, there was constant, you know, there were constant drives for, um, you know, for metals, for uh, rubber, for all kinds of just different, you know, different things. And, um, yeah, so during those years, it was, it was very, um, very stressful and very, you know, essentially you were competing with Japan. Um, over who was going to run the Pacific at yeah. that point, and as a result, these you know these processes kind of you know coalesced, and then after the war, as part of the Marshall Plan, uh, American forces worked on rebuilding Japanese industry because we realized, hey, you know, winning a war is one thing, but after you after you bomb the crap out of somebody, if you don't fix it and you know kind of make them whole again, you're going to be fighting them again. Yeah, the Civil Communications Section or CCS developed a management training program that taught statistical control methods. Yeah, this was taught by Homer Saracen and Charles Protzman. I think they're Protzman. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, that was during the year of 1949 and 1950. It was after that point, um, I think at the suggestion of uh, Saracen, but don't quote me on that, that they brought in uh, W. Edwards Deming. And you may have actually heard of this guy. Um, he was a major champion of statistical process control and one of the key people in Japan's post-war growth into an industrial superpower. It is considered to have had more influence on Japanese industry than any non-Japanese person in history. Um, and that's, that's pretty impressive. He didn't get a lot of recognition in the U.S. until the early 90s. A lot of the notions that he pushed were not listened to very well by American industry. And as a result, you know, our, our industry found itself in a position where it couldn't compete as well with Japan. That's part of what happened to the American auto industry. There's a lot of other factors that, you know, went into play with that as well. And so we had to start kind of bringing this in. And it's pretty well seeped into American manufacturing and manufacturing pretty much anywhere in the world at this point has got some of these concepts. Now, they um, have recognized him in Japan. In fact, the Deming Prize in Japan is named after him. And right before that, he was also awarded the Order of the Sacred Treasure, which is an honor granted by the Emperor of Japan. Um, I think it's like the second highest one over there. I think there's like the Order of the Rising Sun or something along those lines that's higher up. But I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is a real big deal. He's well known over in Japan as being, you know, the guy for this sort of thing. Yeah, I remember reading about him when I was studying 
industrial psychology in school. Yeah. And uh, kind of had a, a an overview of it, but not the detail um, that we, well, not the detail that we learned from our friend or that. Yeah, that we dug through in, in yeah. all this. And you got to think, if you have people in your family that were alive back in, say, the 60s and 70s, ask them what Japan's manufacturing reputation was then. Uh, typically, it was you know low-quality, low knockoff crap um, for, for a good while, um, but they kept on improving. Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons that in the motorcycles, the, the American-made motorcycles, especially Harley-Davidson, it, it got really popular because it was cheaper and better built than the Japanese motorcycles. Yeah. Which now, if you talk to a lot of people, like even some of the the hardcore motorcycle club, like it, I think uh, one of the Hells Angels leaders um, in one of his books has been known to say, I wish we had not done the Harley's only thing because the quality of the Japanese motorcycles has improved. Wow. You know, and... Like they're using, like for example, my motorcycle is a Honda. Like it, it uses the same kind of drive as a car. Huh. So it's it's kind of neat. Uh, not the exact same, but you know what I mean. It's like the s- same style. Yeah, and if you look at uh, the software development industry today, we have roughly the same reputation that Japan's industrial sector had. You know, as these processes were taking place and Japan was reshaping, like we're better than we used to be, but people expect software to crash and, you know, constantly. And so it, it would, that, that's part of the reason we wanted to uh, bring this stuff up because we think that this would actually help software developers a lot in driving change in their organizations. So I guess now is a good time to get to the point of this whole thing. The point is to be able to surface incremental improvements in your processes without excessive downtime that can create risk. If you're in a business environment, you probably cannot take a year off of development to improve your processes. No. Um, I, mean, I know we doing, can't. Yeah. You need to be doing that while you're developing. Yeah. And nearly every place I've worked, there's been at least one developer or IT person that's like, we need to just stop everything and fix all the stuff that's wrong. It's like that never happens. Yeah. Like you can't, you have to have a process for actually doing this while you're in motion. Yeah. I was, I was in a meeting today. We were talking about some code that was written some of it before I got there and the rest while I was there, but by another developer who's gone to a different department and some of the decisions don't really make a lot of sense. And I, I made the comment of like, yeah, I'd like to, to rewrite some parts because it just doesn't make sense why they were done this way. And I, I, I know better ways of doing it now. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, I would love to just stop it and rewrite the whole thing. Yeah. And most developers would, right? Like yeah. that's a, uh, that's a pretty common thing. I mean, we've got parts of our app that were written basically where somebody layered a repository pattern over a unit of work pattern. And they thought that was sound engineering and it was better than what we had when they started doing that process, but it's not um, its not scaling or aging very well. And yeah, we'd love to rewrite it, but we can't. So we've got to think about how we're going to move forward and get incremental improvements because otherwise our competitors are going to clean our clock. Exactly. Another example, in Toyota's production system, personnel are expected to stop production lines if they notice an abnormality. 
when this happens, they and their management will suggest improvements, which are then quickly implemented into the process. Yeah. And this usually happens within a day, right? Like it's okay to say, okay, this is broken. How do we fix this better, but do it in a short enough time period that we can still produce? Right. That, you know, that's kind of what it's uh, the idea is based around. And and that's reasonable, right? Like you can stop development and go, hey, you know, when I do this, like half the time the build doesn't work. Let me fix that build script so that I quit having to mess with it. Oh, yeah. And that that's that's small. Yeah. That's not rewriting the entire app because the build script and several other things don't work. Right. It's all right. Let me get the most annoying thing and fix that. Yeah. So we've kind of been talking around this, but the actual cycle of Kaizen is plan, do, check, act. This is known as the Schuhart cycle or PDCA or PDSA. Or, yeah, or um, there's a few variants as well, like Toyotas, they add an additional O step at the beginning that refers to observing the current situation. So it's like OP, uh, let's see, OPDCA. Yeah. Um, at that point. And it was, it was, it was called the shoe heart cycle by Deming. And then they have, you know, they run into these other things and, you know, whatever. Like it's sort of like agile means kind of like this con, you know, grouping of concepts and we just let it go at that. Yeah. Um, somebody probably really cares and is probably really irritated right now, but I got to say, I don't like it's, it's more of a, I want to get the general concept. And I think that's probably the best. Um, if you're more interested in this, there are loads and loads of courses on this that you can pay through the nose for and get this information. There are numerous things in a business environment that this improves. First off, it helps reduce waste, both in terms of time and materials. Yeah, and I mean, this is obviously comes out of a manufacturing context, but you do you do sort of get the same uh, the same kind of deal. Obviously, time is a, is the most expensive asset that programmers have. We you know any software development shop. You know, the, the main expense typically is labor. Well, I mean, we may not have physical materials. Right. We have CPU cycles. Yeah. We have uh, hard disk space, memory, uh, bandwidth, you know, those kind of and things. And if you're, if you're using like a platform as a service. Yeah. Then that's costing the company. Right. And so you do have to think about these things, even though our way of measuring those things are not necessarily um, volumes and weights and measures in the real world. They're digital ones exactly yeah the same rules still apply it also reduces manufacturing defects um, and that improves product reliability in the field so you get it to the point where things can't go wrong in a certain way so that you don't have to deal with it again the other thing it does and this is sort of a this is a side effect that i think is probably you know maybe not talked about enough and that is that it empowers employees to improve the manufacturing process and to be thinking about that um, the whole time while they're doing things. Um, so, you know, that really fixes morale. Yeah, it makes people feel better and feel more empowered and that their opinion and they have a stake in what is going on. Yeah, I mean, it, it just gets rid of the, you know, it gets rid of the notion that a job is a place you go to experience learned helplessness, which, you know, a lot of manufacturing jobs and a lot of even development jobs kind of have a lot of that going on. So, exactly. Yeah, it, it, the human factors, you know, really are not to be underestimated. So next, we're going to dive into the individual steps of Kaizen. And for this, we're going to use Toyota's variant, the OPDCA. And just quick review, that is observe, plan, 
do, check, study, and act. The first one there is observe. Yeah, and, and it's during this phase that you'll determine what's going on with the existing system, including taking actual measurements. Um, and I, I wanted to really drive home the fact that this is a very measurement-based, you know, statistical process type deal. This is not a feelings-based thing. You need real concrete data to prove that your improvement actually helped things out. Yeah, and so your starting point is, okay, is not the app sucks and the app is slow. It's the app takes this long to do this thing. It uses this much memory, you know, real, you know, real hard data. Because an app that sucks, well, all of them do to somebody. Yeah. But that's not a, you know, that's not, a, it's a subjective measurement, not an objective one. And this is why you're trying to get in the discipline of, of getting a objective reality. I wish some QA that I knew thought more like this. Yeah, it would be nice. Because, you know, this button should be over here. Why? It just seems like that's where it should be. Yeah, I feel, yeah. Um, you know, where I work, and I can I can say this because I think the guy's been gone a long time anyway, um, but they there was a guy there that um, every time that he would try to suggest something to management, he would start out with, well, I feel like, and of course, you know, you got engineering types that are like, I don't care what you feel like. Your feelings don't matter to me. Prove it with numbers or go home. Okay, so here here's the thing, and I know where he's coming from because he probably went to some kind of assertiveness type training where you do the I statements. Right. And was was told, and it was probably some kind of management type training because they do this in management training. You, they say, okay, now talk about how it makes you feel so they will empathize with you. Right. And that works for interpersonal yeah. situations and it works for some things, but like, dude, you got a room full of neck beards. Like, you know, like you got to come at them with numbers. Like you just, you just can't do it that well, way. That's, that's like my, my boss. I went to her and said, Hey, I would like to spend some time researching auto mapper. And she's like, okay, what's that? And I said, well, it is a tool that will probably save days of time developing and reduce the number of errors we have. And, you know, I was like, I don't know the metrics yet. I would like the chance to check that out. But this is the benefits that's going to have. Yeah. And I mean, really, if you look at this whole process, it's the scientific method. Yeah, it is. Uh, you it know, really it's like, is. It's like yeah. you observe, you form a hypothesis, you test it, you get the results, and then you, you write do something with it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it... It's applied to manufacturing with those constraints. So it's slightly different, but you know, it's not yeah. that much different. So the next thing here is that you plan and that's where you come up with your objectives and the process that you intend to use to achieve them. And that also, by the way, includes defining what actual s success is, right? This is also a, a number. This is something that you can subjectively measure, not, Hey, the app isn't going to suck anymore after this, mm -hmm. right? It's the login isn't going to take three seconds We're, we want to trim that down to under a second. Yeah. And that's our, you know, that's our barometer of what success is. Or, you know, in, in my example, it took me four hours to build this, whereas the old way took eight hours. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, really, it's, um, it's a subjective measure, but it's compared to the previous measure. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's the kind of stuff you want to get. And, and that's, you, you want to have some baseline measurement that you beat. Yes, and that's, and, and you, that's, that's, that's what your extent. observe is. Yeah, that's that's what. Well, I mean, that's what you're you're planning to uh, to beat. Like you're trying to go. Okay, how can we beat that? And they're both subjective measures that you can compare, not feelings. 
So the next thing is the do step. This um, is where you actually do the work to fix the situation. And this includes the collection of data for use in following steps to show that what you've done has been effective. Right. Like, for instance, with the logging process, the login process I was, I was talking about. If you're supposed to be speeding up the login, you can't rewrite the login you know, system and leave you know, timing checks out of there and then go, oh, it's better because it, it feels faster. Right. Like, you've got to collect that data. Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to quantify things. Well, it's like when I was playing around with the auto mapper, I actually did tests to see on the same thing being mapped, which was faster, the auto mapper or the mapping code that I had written. Right. And the auto mapper actually was faster on that. Plus it was about four lines of code versus about 200. Yeah. Makes a difference. It does. So it, it saved both developer time in, creating and then it ran on the app faster yeah and i will point out here too that you do want to you know, when you're quantifying things you know you, you obviously pick the variables that matter to you if you had compared it for startup time you might have seen a slightly different story yeah it might have bumped it a little bit because it generates code but obviously you, know, you don't care about that like you're not starting up most of the time it's a web app it's up or it's not up yeah exactly you know? it, it, the well, this goes back to just science in general. The what you measure matters. You know, so if if you want to tell whether or not it's faster to walk, you know, in a spiraling pattern to your car or in a straight line, measuring the number of spirals yeah. isn't really useful to determine which is faster. Right. So yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta measure things that are actually important. I mean, that's that's the big deal here. Um, and the next phase is the check or study phase, and that is where you compare the new results you, you obtained to the previous ones you collected during the observation phase. So you notice these are completely separate, right? It's not like you go in there and you do it, and then as you're doing it, you go, yeah, this is better. Mm -hmm. Like you get done and you collect it, and then you react to it. Um, and that, there's a lot of reasons for that, partially just so that you can be a objective observer to this measurement. Versus being like in the mix and going, oh, hey, this isn't working, but I'm going to say it's better. Like it, it kind of breaks yeah. that that emotional attachment to it. Also, you may want to chart the data that you've collected over several of these cycles. Yes. Especially if you're evaluating it based on multiple criteria. Right. For instance, if you look at uh, database query performance, like I, I just went through this in the app I'm dealing with. You know, I was able to drastically improve database performance at the cost of a small amount of cash. And I mean, cash with, you know, two C's, not, you know, cash like cash me outside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just I want to name a, you know, a caching service outside. <laughs> name my cash outside. <laughs> that was not necessarily the alliteration I was going for. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, I, but I was able to, I was able to improve that. Well, if we were in a very memory constrained situation where we actually really cared about that, you know, that might be something we wanted, we would want to compare and go, okay, how can we get our cash utilization down as well as, you know, the amount of network traffic and CPU and all the other things that are going into the mix. Um, or if we were comparing, you know, CPU utilization, network utilization, uh, hard disk, uh, memory, all those things, like they tend to, they tend to interact with each other. And so you're going to want to graph that stuff out in so that you can look at each aspect of it versus just a single measure. Finally, you want to act. If the new process is better than the old one, objectively better, and you can prove it, this is where you make it official and it becomes the new baseline. 
In other words, you merge it into main. Yeah. If the new process isn't better, then you don't implement it. Right. Just because it's new doesn't mean you should do it. If it's new and it's exactly the same, that also means you shouldn't implement it because it has more risk. You haven't determined the downsides. Right. So, yeah, you you know, you notice how this thing is all broken up, though, because, I mean, part of the deal, too, is like an industrial um, situation. The person doing the observation, person doing the planning, person, you know, actually doing the thing, all, like all these are different people. And in a large enough software environment, this is probably also true as well. So next, we're going to talk about how you can use this in your development lifecycle. But before you start, I thought of a great example of this that... You know, like Will said, this is very much scientific method. This is sort of just the way my brain works because of all the years of school and scientific paper writing. Well, go ahead. Testify. Recently, we had a major bug come up in an app that had just gone to production. Uh, like a breaking bug. We didn't know what was going on. And and major bugs are bad because sometimes they get promoted to kernel bug. Oh. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Dude, when, a, when, a, when a major bug goes to the kernel. <laughs> See, I didn't, I didn't think I didn't think military kernel. I thought kernel. I know. <laughs> uh, that was, I'm so sorry for that joke. <laughs> All right. So no, we, we had a major breaking bug come up in an app that had just gone to production and we had not ever seen anything like it in test UAT. No one had ever seen anything like it. And this happened on the one day we happened to be in the office. Like everybody comes in on Wednesdays. Well, it was on Wednesday that the product owner came down to the department and said, Hey, this is going on. And when we saw it, we're like, Whoa, that's, that's huge. We, we kind of had an idea about what was going on, but we weren't, weren't sure. Nobody could get it to reproduce. It's kind of a weird bug. And so our boss comes down and says, hey, do we need to have everybody come in tomorrow to work on this? And I am known for not liking to come into work when I don't have to. I said, I will work better if I have my three monitors at home. I can have one with the code, one test, and I can like set breakpoints and I broke it down for my whole process and explained how I would debug at home versus being there with possibly one extra monitor. Yeah. And a thousand interruptions. Yeah. And and then I mentioned the interruptions. I said, you know, we can keep in contact and you know, history has shown we work faster and better when we are at home. And so my boss said, that works for me. Yep. You know, part of it was We'd done this already and proved, hey, we actually do get more done when we're at home than when we're in the office with the interruptions. But the other part was, I didn't say, I feel, I didn't say, I didn't get upset and say, I don't want to come in, things like that. I said, hey, I'll come in, but understand, I'll do a better job and this will get fixed faster if I'm at home and here's why. Yeah. And you you, you had objective measurement. Yes. For that. Um, it's it's really hard to argue with numbers because there's so many of them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're on a roll tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bad. Sorry, everybody. Um, but if you're in an agile environment, a lot of this is kind of in place in the appropriate or typical agile lifecycle. 
Yeah. As opposed to uh, the amount of it that's in place in the typical <laughs> yeah. life cycle of what people are calling agile with air quotes, you know, uh-huh. agile, but as, as we like to call it, because it's not agile. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically, if you're doing an iterative development life cycle, some of these things will already be present. And if you're trying to implement Kaizen, obviously, you've got to push further ahead. So odds are go- also good that your agile process is missing some critical things for all these uh, techniques to actually work. And the first of these is that you're probably not measuring your current state very well. Things like saying the app is slow is not a measurement. That's just an opinion. Um, being able to say the app takes five seconds to log in, that's a measurement. And so you have to get more in practice of actually measuring things than is typical for a lot of computer science and programmer trained type people. Um, because we get it to where it works and we just go. We think it's better and you know subjectively and we move forward. And that's what you've got to stop doing for Kaizen to actually work. You have to get a good definition of what success is and you have to have the means to measure it. Yeah. Because, I mean, apparent increases in speed um, are really, you know, and things like that are really, really deceptive. You know, okay, cool. It's faster on the local network. Well, why is it faster on the local network? Well, because you're running the database locally. And it's not transiting the actual network, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. Like if it's going, if it's in the real production environment and it's being used, then yeah. But your apparent um, subjective experience a lot of times also leaves out all the variables that are actually making the thing bad. So it's, it's important to get those. You also have to actually collect and use your measurements. So, you know, you maybe are collecting some things. You're probably not collecting enough things. And you have to be able to roll those up in some manner that is actually usable. Um, you know, so this means you know, putting it in a database table, reporting off of it, those kind of those kind of setups. Um, on my team, uh, one thing that we're looking at doing is to actually collect these measurements as part of the build process. So when a CI build goes through, you know, it gets deployed, we're going to kick off a SQL trace, run our automated test, stop the SQL trace, collect all that data, and it goes into a report. So that we have that feedback loop. You kind of have to be doing these things for Kaizen to actually work. Um, it can't just be a you know subjective end to end. Like you really, really have to push on this stuff a lot. Um, and also, you have to implement the improvements that you discover. Right. If you don't actually implement them, then what's the point? Really? Yeah. Because like if we go, okay, yeah, this thing is slow. You know, the, you know this query is being called too much, and then we don't do anything about it. It really doesn't matter. Okay. Now we. Now we're kind of morally culpable because we know it's busted, but we didn't fix it. So. Yeah, that's that's very true. Now, if you guys are doing water fail, as a lot of people are, this is going to be a bit more difficult as your process doesn't really support iterative change, even though waterfall should support iterative change in short waterfalls. Water fail. Right. <laughs> Which is what most people are doing when they're doing waterfall. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, know, you can you can kind of implement a Kaizen process, but it's such a long iteration window that you know you have to you end up doing big changes, and that's really not what you want to be doing here. And a lot of this stuff really requires uh, plugging in things like analytics packages, uh, running automated code tests, etc. For instance, if you're trying to improve performance, you need to actually measure things like memory usage, time at each stage of the process, those kind of things. All the way through, you'll have to have a baseline of performance and then you have to do the same on your improved version of the code for all those different things that you're measuring. You can't just skip some. Then you have to compare performance, which also means getting the data in the same format, which may be tricky. 
um, especially if you replace chunks of the system, because now you're not comparing apples to apples, and so you're going to have to manipulate data uh, yeah. to, to get that out. Um, I, I did this myself recently. Um, I think I mentioned this before. Uh, while trying to improve page performance in our main app, there was some stuff that was happening on every request multiple times, not cached, Ooh. opening and closing connections for yeah. each instance that did it. So it's like you're seeing, uh, you know, 40 SP underscore, uh, was it reset connection yeah. calls per page load, which that just says, hey, I've got a, I've got a SQL connection, you know, basically reset it so that it's, it comes back out of the connection pool and it's clean. It's good to go. Yeah. You know, we haven't fixed that part yet, but now we have measured it. So like we're in the process of, of getting those things done. There's some larger architectural things that are causing that. But yeah, we had to, we had to measure it and then we have to act on it. Yeah, that makes sense. Kaizen can help you refine your development process, reducing bugs and improving your ability to deliver software on time and under budget. This process removes the touchy-feely aspect of Agile as commonly practiced and lets your team react to hard numbers and real data. It helps you both support the decisions you've made to management and to make better ones more quickly. That pretty much wraps us up. Before Will gets into tricks of the trade, we want to invite everyone in the Nashville area out to Bar Camp Nashville Conference. Bar Camp Nashville is a free annual gathering of the local tech community to learn, share, and connect. Yeah, it's a day for sharing your passions and discoveries and exploring new interests. Bar Camp is a user-generated unconference allowing anyone to participate as a presenter, organizer, or volunteer. It's an opportunity for those who found success and failure to share their experiences and learnings with others to help grow and strengthen the Nashville tech community. This year, it will be held October 21st from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Tech Hill Commons. That's the same building as National Software School, by the way. There will also be an after party. Yeah, Will and I, along with the Junior Developer Toolbox crew, will be there at our booth and also recording interviews in the podcast lounge. Follow the link in the show notes to register and vote for the talks that you want to see. So, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? I have a small rant. Y'all all saw the uh, Equifax thing that happened this last week, right? 143 million uh, compromised identities, basically, um, which is pretty substantial because you know, the U.S. population is only 320 million. Like, you know somebody that got compromised. You have a 50-50 chance, give or take, maybe slightly less than 50-50 of being a, vi- a direct victim. That's pretty substantial. And the last thing I read on it was that a network administrator or somebody in an administrative capacity left a um, encryption key in cloud storage unprotected and that that's what happened. Um, regardless of what happened, like this is such a major breach that I, I want to suggest to you that this shows a little bit of a business opportunity for everyone. And, and what I mean by that is there is a significant market opportunity in the manufacture of handcuffs, um, judging by our government's refusal to use them. I don't know where the freaking handcuffs are, but it is nuts. Like this stuff can't keep going on. And some of these major, co- you know, like if we don't rein these major corporations in that are doing this kind of stuff, we're going to be in a dystopia. We're headed that way. And the fact that that business is even in operation right now um, is a testament to the fact that they don't obey the same laws we do. So this is a good, now I don't often say this, but this is a real good time to write your congressperson, get on the phone, chew them out. Like th- this needs to be, the hammer needs to fall on this. 
because if it doesn't, you know, it, it really isn't going to matter a whole lot on you know, all the other bickering that's going on. We're going to be serfs. I said my piece. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.